0: This is Jared O'Brien for the Christians Engaging Culture podcast. Christians Engaging Culture exists to equip Christians to give faithful answers in everyday cultural conversations and to turn those conversations to the gospel. This week we continue with the interview on infertility and the church, in which Chase Kuhn interviews Dr. Megan Best and Professor Jonathan Morris. This section of the interview looks at some of the ethical, practical and social issues associated with assistive reproductive technologies. Again, we want to thank the Center for Christian Living for permission to republish this podcast and encourage you to check out more of their resources at their website.
1: So the reason why this becomes so important then is if we are saying that an embryo is a human life, we are now saying that we have 10 human persons developed in a lab that are either being...
2: Yes, and we need to remember that that's not um as a malicious thing. I think the IVF doctors really do want to help the couple in front of them have a child. And we know that not all embryos may continue to develop to become a live birth. But there's no equation that tells you how many embryos equals so many live births. And so to save the woman from going through an extra cycle of collection of eggs Often they say, well, let's just make the full number we need up front and freeze the extras and we'll just transfer them and we hope we get enough live births from this collection of embryos. But I can think of one woman that came to talk to me who had four children and ten leftover embryos and she was faced with the prospect of... If she transferred them all, all her transfers had been successful. So if she had them all transferred, she was looking at a family of 14 children. And that's why there can be an ethical problem, is what do you do if you have leftovers after you have the family you always hope for?
1: Yes, thank you. I'm trying to bring as much of this into the light as possible, never trying to doubt the intentions that people are desperately wanting a child. Doctors are wanting to give the best chance of success at bringing a child into life but what we're trying to say is that actually each embryo that is formed is a human life Mm. and therefore now what do we do with the other embryos Mm. and what happens to those embryos and therefore those human lives I mean one question to put it starkly is discarding an embryo the same thing as abortion effectively
2: yeah it may be more difficult emotionally you have more time to get attached To a child in the womb.
1: Because the baby's growing in your womb rather than in In a a lab. Rather than
2: in a lab. So you might have a different relationship. But in ethical terms, it's still a human life.
1: Yeah, that's very, very, very strong, isn't it? Now, just moving the conversation a little bit, I mean, I think we feel the weight of the ethical issue now. I think it was already apparent, but it's coming even clearer and clearer. Jonathan, you mentioned before that there is really a marketplace for these things now. And I just wonder, what kinds of things would you help Christians to be aware of? As you started hinting at these things before, what kinds of things would you want Christians to be aware of as they begin approaching something like treatment for infertility in the marketplace? Thanks, Chase.
3: Undoubtedly, I think the decision to engage with one of the larger ART, Artificial Reproductive companies or services is quite a step. I think those sort of measures that general practitioners and general specialists can offer in terms of, you know, using medication sometimes to help a woman ovulate or potential interventions that can help increase the quality of the partner's sperm, for instance, you know, those sort of things can be offered by the generalist. So I think the first thing for a couple to consider is the implications of going that extra step because, like all things, I think it's important to put these foundations down prior to engaging with a service that, again, through all good intentions, functions on the fact that the more embryos they produce, the greater the likelihood of success. And it is very difficult, therefore, to put one's own views, values and considerations forward when really it's not front of mind for those who are providing care. So I think that what's really important is really to wrestle with these issues. You know, What do you think about the beginning of life? What are my views about the number of embryos if I am to undergo IVF? How many embryos will I be willing to have produced?
2: How many babies?
3: How how many babies would I wish to have? And these, I think these discussions need to be at that early interaction because I do fear that sometimes you may be swept along in the industry, which undoubtedly is IVF, and face really difficult decisions later on. So I think as a community we need to be aware of these issues. Obviously we need to think about how in our church community, how is the topic of fertility issues, how careless are we when, you know, we ask people who don't have children, are you having children or You know, we often assume and we don't know the backstories to so many couples that we come across. So I think it's so multifaceted, isn't it? But I do think as Christians, it's really important to put those foundational pillars down. And certainly as Christians, there may not be agreement, but I think it's really important that individually we know where we stand with our conscience going forward.
1: Thank you. You raised some great points there. I mean, just to make sure we don't miss what you just said, there's some very unhelpful things that we can say to people like, when are you going to have kids? Are you going to have kids? Are you guys trying? Even sometimes when people have had children, are you going to have more? Because there are some people that have struggles having more kids and they might find themselves waiting years for more children. And so being more sensitive about the kinds of questions we ask, thinking that we're being chums. Yeah. yeah.
2: Or families with one child being criticized for being selfish because they've only got one child when in fact they have secondary infertility and they can't have another child despite their efforts. And that can be very hurtful.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think we often assume that just because somebody has a child, they might not be struggling, which is certainly not the case. Just coming back to a few things you said here, Jonathan, and you can feel free to jump in as well. I mean, success rate for IVF, am I right that it's about 25% in a cycle? Is that right?
3: Again, it is contingent on the age of the couple. um, But overall, that sort of success rate is per cycle is correct.
1: Yeah, which is why there's going to be a push for higher numbers of embryos Mm -hmm. trying at a, a better chance of success. Let me just ask, I mean, in terms of some of the ethics we should consider, let's say somebody decides in their conscience that they're happy to go forward with IVF and they're willing to have, say, four children. Will doctors respect that wish that they will only create four embryos?
2: It certainly can be done, but in my experience, the couple needs to keep saying it every time they go to the clinic. People in the clinic, including the doctor, the embryologist, may not really believe you. It is so opposed to their own worldview; they may not understand why you're saying it. So if you do want to go down this path, and you do want to respect the lives of your embryos, you need to be prepared to fight for them, and you will need to keep reminding the clinic that not only do you want a limited number of embryos created, but you don't want any of them discarded. You want them all transferred at some point to give them a chance at life. As long as they're alive, that they should be transferred.
1: And what I mean, is it a clear cut then that if we limit the number of embryos we decide to see developed, are there no ethical complications at that point, or are there ethical complications that remain in saying, I'll have four embryos?
3: So again, just to frame this, the normal cycle, as Megan has alluded to, is the mother is stimulated to produce as many eggs as possible. They're retrieved usually through an ultrasound technique, and those eggs are fertilized. The normal approach is to fertilize as many as possible, to culture those embryos that do fertilize for five days to the plasticist stage. And those embryos are inspected once every day or every second day. And in that process, the embryologists begin to score the embryos such that by day five they're deciding which ones they think are worthy of freezing and the others because there's fragmentation and there's appearances under the microscope. So normally the conventional view is that around 20 to 40% of those eggs that fertilize are sufficiently high quality that they can be used. So the normal IVF cycle, the approach to it is there will be attrition in that first five days, which is what... Which is part
2: of the normal cycle. Sure.
3: Now, one could say, well, that happens, you know, who knows what happens each month we're trying to fall pregnant. but Yeah, a couple hey, could be having normal intercourse, uh, and that could be happening internally. And, so, and
2: no one knows. And
3: nobody knows. And again, Psalm 139, I mean, it is poetic, but it's poignant, isn't it? You know, I was wonderfully made in that darkest place, and suddenly we're, you know, under the bright light of a microscope. and. I think as Christians, we've got to think, can we hold that comfortably or is there a tension there? And I think Christians will think differently about that. So the question is, is the willful production of a number of embryos recognizing that they will perish, some of them will perish in that first five days, is that something that sits comfortably with me, given my view of you know, what the Bible guides us? Because to me, that's the issue. If the thinking is, well, that could happen naturally, people may find that comforting, others may find that confronting.
1: Yes, something different, I guess, naturally is, you have that happen month on month while you're alive internally in your body. If you freeze four embryos and something happens to you, those embryos remain even though you don't. So there is always the potential of the embryos enduring longer than even perhaps you or your opportunity to have children implanted in your own womb, I guess. There's all sorts of... All kinds of other complications as well, yes.
2: I think we also need... I entirely agree with what's been said, and I want to say ethically there is a difference between actively deciding to let embryos be discarded and them naturally failing to develop within the body. I think ethically that's quite different, and I just wanted to say that. But I think we also need to remember, as Jonathan alluded at the beginning, is that the whole modern pregnancy industry is now aiming towards making sure only perfectly healthy babies are born. And the way that is achieved is by genetically screening embryos after they've been grown in the laboratory before they're transferred. There's increasing pressure for parents to agree to having genetic screening of their embryos, which is called pre-implantation genetic diagnosis or PGD. And any embryos which don't have the genetic profile that's preferred by the parents are discarded because of their genetic makeup. And I think that is highly problematic that we would discriminate against embryos because of their genetic profile.
1: Yeah, that's very helpful. So, I mean, as we're trying to get clearer then on what it might be for Christians to be doing responsibly, is there a firm line we want to be drawing? I mean, do we want to be that prescriptive, or are there lines Christians potentially shouldn't cross, or is it more about consultation and then conscience? How do you advise Christians? I realize professionally you have certain things to hold to or to refer to, but how do you advise Christian couples in this space? I know that's a very tough question to ask you, but I want to ask it anyways.
3: I think that it's necessary for any couple to think about when life begins. I think it's necessary for a couple to think through the implications of an IVF cycle in which undoubtedly a greater number of embryos will be created than will survive to five days. I think it's also necessary to think about any process that results in excess embryos that decisions will be made about. I think that, you know, for some couples, that means that the very undergoing of IVF is deeply problematic and and at odds with the Bible. Others, you know, may feel that the Bible, it's consistent with you know, producing as many embryos as I'm willing to have uh, have children. I think, you know, these are difficult, but I think as Christians we've just got to be very careful that we don't turn anything in that to our lives into an idol and pursue it at the cost of what we think the Bible's saying.
1: That was the very next thing I wanted to go to, and I guess I'll turn this to Megan maybe for a second. I mean, what is the greatest danger in this? There's obviously pressures couples feel, or even singles feel, about what kind of things constitute a full life. And it's very difficult for each of us to speak on this because we each have children, but we can tell it from the other side in one sense that even marriage and even children don't necessarily constitute a full life. But people believe that they must have certain things in order to be complete or completely human or even maybe obedient to what God made them for. Mm. What do you tell couples that feel this kind of pressure, and, and what is the danger there?
2: I think we need to look carefully at the Bible and realize that you can be a complete human without getting married. You can be a complete human when you're married and don't have children. I think it's all right for couples experiencing infertility, as we're hinting, not to pursue IVF. There is enormous pressure in churches to have a family, to be involved with the children's program, to get the chocolate at the door of church on Mother's Day. We have this expectation that everyone will have families, that this is normal life. I think that we need to realise that you can have a fulfilling marriage without biological children. We haven't even touched on the topic of adoption or foster children. There is an enormous need in Australia for foster parents. And some people would argue that it's more ethical to adopt a child who's needing a home than to even consider having your own children because that need is so great. How wonderful for a child with no family to be given a Christian home. So I think that it's okay not to go down the IVF path if you're struggling with infertility. And even though it's enormously difficult, I think, to come to terms with the fact that you can't have your own children, if that's what you were hoping for. We need to realize that having children is a good, it's a gift from God, it's a blessing, and it's okay to want those things. But it's not okay to want it at any cost, as Chase has already said, and I think we have to remember that sometimes God has plans for us that we weren't expecting. And it's not something we can come to terms with overnight, but sometimes God is listening to our prayers and saying, no, this is not a gift you will be receiving. And we need to grieve that loss and start thinking about what else God might have in store for us.
1: On that note, that's very, very helpful. On that note, I mean, how do we grieve and long together, especially in the face of others having what we want so badly? I mean, this impacts on singles, this impacts on those that are grieving family members or at distance, especially impinges on people that are desperate for children, sitting next to somebody with a crying baby in the pew or being asked to help at kids' church. Yeah. How how are we sensitive in the community? I mean, reflections from your own experience, maybe, or just wisdom.
2: Look, I once just asked a couple, I had a couple in our Bible study who didn't have children, and then... Eventually the wife said they couldn't have children. And when I had my first child, I just went to her and said, tell me, do you want me to include you? Do you want me to invite you over to the christening? Do you want to be involved with my baby? Or is it easy for you if I just don't talk about the baby in Bible study? And she said, no, I want to be involved. I don't want to be cut out of this part of your life. And sometimes I think if we have a more open conversation, There are people, I had a a woman in my Bible study group once at Ladies' Bible Study at church with all the babies, and she said, I just can't keep coming. It's just too hard to see these babies, people having babies all the time when I can't. And she couldn't cope with being involved with the babies. So sometimes I think perhaps we just need to talk about it a bit more and find out how individuals feel rather than think that all infertile couples feel the same way.
1: Yeah, and keep children in perspective. They're a blessing from God, but there's one author that I read that calls them, for many suburban Christians, for example, immortality symbols. So, we celebrate our children as if they are everything. They are our legacy, and we make all of our life about all of our kids and photos and sports and whatever else, whereas there's much more to life even than just child-rearing, and hopefully there's more to us than just being parents.
2: Apparently those Christmas letters, you know, the ones with this is yes. what my children achieved this year, can be very unhelpful for some people. That's so. good to
1: know. Yeah, that's great. Anything you want to add on this, Jonathan?
3: Well, I don't write those letters, that's good. <laughs> Look, the Christian life is one of grieving and longing. Again, you know, it was Don Carson, us: if you live long enough, you will suffer. And I guess suffering and disappointments come in every aspect of our lives. And again, it's a question of, you know, that longing when things will be right and God's kingdom is established, living for that whilst realizing that your daily experiences is is at times, you know, there is a sense of a loss there. There's a sense of something that hasn't been attained. And, you know, that's the Christian life. And I guess we are called for obedience. And there are so many issues in modern life now where I think there's a danger we become chameleon Christians. We are the same as everyone else, but, you know, the challenge is for us to be in this world but not of it. And I think this is one example where, you know, sometimes our choices, which may be countercultural, speak volumes to the faith that we have and the God that we believe and the hope that we have, yeah.
1: Learning to long is really a lost art in the Christian life, isn't it? Looking on in hope, even while we recognize there are things we don't have now that we wish we did. Just quickly, if anybody's feeling guilty maybe about embryos they've discarded, or maybe they've had children and they're thankful for the blessing they have of children that have come through IVF, how do you help people think through these things that have been done as Christians?
2: We have a God who forgives us when we confess our sins. If we can confess our sins, we're forgiven on the spot. We have a gracious God who does give us good things. We should be thankful for the good things he's given us. We need to repent of our sins and try to make better choices in the future. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus.
1: Yeah, that's a great great thing and there are many things in our life not just in this space maybe that we've achieved at by means that we would have otherwise chosen differently in hindsight and we can still thank god for the blessings that have come in spite of these things he's yeah. an
2: amazing god that he can bring good things out of our bad choices
1: yeah thank you very much
2: we're going to turn to some
1: question and answers here in just one moment before we do just can i can just, I I
2: just to... say one thing
1: absolutely you can
2: female fertility starts reducing at the age of 27 Sure, we see Hollywood women having babies in their late 40s. They probably used a surrogate. Don't wait too long. I think that another myth in our society is that we've got all the time in the world when in fact the biological clock is ticking and it sounds so trite, but we need to be sensible. We need to start, if we have the opportunity and not everybody does to start when they're in their 20s. That's better than starting in your 30s. And if you want to have a baby, you need to have sex regularly. And not everybody's doing that and at the time they start to worry about infertility. So, you know, think about the basics as well if you want to have a child and try to avoid some of these problems. Thank you. I just wanted to well, say. That's
1: very helpful. Thank you. Just before we turn to the Q&A, we've got a lot of questions that have come through on Slido and we're grateful for all the audience participation. Thank you very much. I'm grateful for what I've already heard so much. It's been so stimulating, and I imagine there are going to be, again, more questions that we can answer. Before we turn to that, I want to give them a moment to have a drink and have a break. I want to give you just a couple of announcements. One of the things that the Center, we're trying to do is put as many good resources in your hands as possible. Karen, who you don't see, she works behind the scenes as the assistant to the Center, is curating these goods all the time, resources of written format that she's transcribing even from live events like these, blog posts from students an alumni from the college, podcasts that we're running twice a month. And we're very excited about these kinds of resources that we're working very hard to curate. Can I just encourage you to make good use of the Center for Christian Living? Go to our website, ccl.more.edu.au, sign up for our e news, subscribe to our podcast, and you'll get regular resources from us. And of course, you can always unsubscribe if you're unhappy, but hopefully, you'll be very happy. A couple other things we've given you dates for next year for our events for the Center for Christian Living, but I'd also like to tell you about another one of our partner centers, the Priscilla and Aquila Center, which is really trying. Trying to resource how men and women work together in ministry, especially trying to help women think about ministry in different ways. We have a conference coming up in February. It's always very well attended. This year we're talking about Genesis Women, and it's on February 1st. Gary Miller and Fiona Miller will be coming down from Brisbane, and we're very glad to have them coming And I hope that you'll make it a point to join us for that conference, which is always a real treat. So please make sure you check that out. Again, there's more information in the handout on things you can check out, including Megan's book, which I think is a phenomenal resource on these very issues. You can read up more on things we've been talking about today. What I'm going to do now is open up the questions from Slido and ask questions of our panelists. And so live fire. Here we go. Although the last ones were a bit live-fire as well. You didn't really know it was coming. <laughs> the first question that's the most popular is, do you have a view on the ethics of a couple donating embryos that they do not want to an infertile couple? I do. Please
2: share. First of all, I think that the situation we've already described where you have to work out how many embryos may be created for a certain couple if you do decide to go down the IVF track. You shouldn't be thinking at that stage, oh, if I have any extras, I'll just donate them to an infertile couple. I see donation of excess embryos as what we call a retrieval ethic. It's making the best of a fallen world. Ideally, we would not have unwanted embryos in storage. In Australia, I'd say there's probably at least 100,000 embryos in storage it's very hard to know, but you know, lots and lots and lots of frozen embryos in storage. Don't go into this process thinking, I'll just donate the extras. I think this is only something we need to do in an extreme situation when there really is no other way to save the lives of those embryos. And if you do decide to go down that track, I would say, I would view it ethically as a very early adoption. And what happens is you sign the embryo storage over to another couple, and they start paying the storage fees and then they start going through the system of having the hormones injected into the woman so that her body is ready to have an embryo transfer and it's a bit cheaper for them because they don't need to go through the egg retrieval and sort of the preparation involved in creating the embryos. There are Christian organisations which facilitate this process. The babies born from this process have been called snowflake babies to just remind us that each embryo has its unique DNA the way every snowflake is unique. So this is certainly one way that children have been born through discarded embryos in a way mm. but I see it as an act which is a last resort rather than something you aim for at the point of creation of embryos.
1: I really like the language shift you've used there because just as we would talk about an unwanted embryo that's just like talking about in some ways an unwanted pregnancy and if we talk about unwanted pregnancy suddenly we're in the language then of abortion yeah. and I like that instead you've talked about the embryos being early adoptions which is recognizing, again, human personhood and giving a life over to someone else for birth.
2: That's right. And making sure that embryo has at least a chance at life. You don't know if the embryo will develop, but you don't know that it won't.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's right. Okay. Thank you very much. The second question then is, do you think there are issues with trying to play God by going down the ART path?
3: At what point should we
1: accept that this may not be God's will for us?
3: Look, I think in many ways this is a foundational question, you know, when, you know, this is discernment, isn't it, in a very personal issue, but I think it is the key, it's about what one has, you know, a couple have to be prayerful about, is this God's will, has God got other plans for your life, and I do think that it's an area where, you know, one really has to wrestle with, you know, what is obedience and what is seeking something that isn't God's will, I think it's key. There are a couple of
1: questions here about how we face this as a church family. I think we've tried to attempt an answer to a few of these things, and I hope that will be satisfactory. Just as I go through them, though, can I just offer an anecdote that I've been so impressed with people in my church, in particular singles that are wanting children or even married couples that have struggled, who have been very open with us about their struggle and have even said things that are very helpful to them. So I could think of one single woman in our church that we love dearly who says, I love your children, and I love to be around your kids. And we think, that's fantastic. And so she's in our home often much like a a family member loving our kids, and they love her, and it's a joy for them and for us. And of course, it's not just, you know, being around our kids just to be around our kids, but it's actually to be around us too. It's like part of our family. If we're more open about these kinds of things, then we know how to love each other better and how to be more open and hospitable to one another. And I think that's a really important thing for us is to keep talking about these things in our church. Next question then. With life beginning at fertilization, what does that mean for early miscarriage and for how we should grieve as Christians? Should this be the same as if we're losing a child that were born at full term?
2: I think that many people grieve even at losing a very early pregnancy, particularly if it's a treasured pregnancy. As I've already mentioned tonight, I think the longer you have a relationship with a child, the harder it is to lose that child. It is harder to lose a baby at term than a baby who is still at a very early embryo stage. But if you knew you were pregnant and viewed that as, you know, once you're pregnant, you're a parent. And if you lose that child, you lose all the hopes that were wrapped up in that baby. And I think it's not just a problem for Christians, I think that throughout our society there seems to be a conspiracy of silence around miscarriage. And I personally, I've spoken to many women who desperately grieve loss of a baby at the stage of a miscarriage, but felt they couldn't tell people because They weren't really pregnant or they you know it wasn't really a baby i think by downplaying the humanity of an embryo or a fetus we're really robbing those mothers and fathers of that opportunity to acknowledge that they were parents and they lost that child
1: thank you that's very helpful what do we think about single women using art to become pregnant I mean, I know a lot of single women feel pressure right now, this is different I know, to freeze eggs early while they're young because their eggs are healthier, potentially more viable while they're young, but that obviously is then priming them for a particular kind of procedure later in life, but what do we think about single women actually going the full step of ART to have a child as a single parent?
3: So, I mean, with the advent of such technologies, anyone can have a family now, and, you know, there are rainbow clinics who obviously advertise this service to couples in all sorts of different relationships, and single women too. You know, as Christians, we believe that the family unit is a mother and a father, and certainly that's the biblical lens that we would see would help humankind flourish and society flourish so it's again i realize i don't fully understand the struggles that some people who are single have but ultimately you know once we begin to see a child as a commodity which essentially can be obtained through these means i think we're missing god's plan for our society and human flourishing
1: and we have to be very careful don't we about the kinds of ways that culture creeps in then commodification of children or other things. It really is a marketplace that we're being sold things that we want and being told we can have, in fact, you should have. And suddenly I feel entitled to all sorts of things that otherwise may not have been possible.
2: Yes, we have to think about the whole process from the perspective of the child, not just the perspective of the parent or the adult.
1: Yes, of course. That's right. And so you're basically welcoming them into a single-parent home. And
2: And we've heard from donor offspring very much in the media that they resent the fact that they don't know who their biological parents are. That's right. Because someone decided that it was more important to have a child using anybody, you know, if they didn't have their own egg or sperm and they had those gametes donated to have a child. But these children resent the fact that there's been a lack of clarity in their biological heredity. So I think when you start to consider the perspective of the child, even more ethical issues arise.
1: Someone's coming back again just wondering, is there an ethical way to go about IVF?
2: I think we all have to be honest in realising that a large number of human embryos were destroyed in the development of IVF. So there are ethical problems in the whole industry because that has been part of the way the industry has developed as new technologies are developed and now human embryos are used for things like quality assurance and training of technicians. They're destroyed in those processes. So we have to realise that there are ethical problems in the whole industry. But if you are determined, if you think this is the right thing for you, if you are determined to go down this route, as I said, I would get educated up front and find out what is involved in the processes so you can be aware of ethical problems before you go into it. A lot of the ethical problems, such as leftover embryos, can creep up on you without realising. You need to know about it before you start. Pray about it before you start. And only create the number of embryos that you would be willing to have as children. Don't set out without keeping in mind the ethical problems that can arise or you will be caught out. Also, because the success rate is only 25%, I think starting out, you need to have some sense of how much am I going to invest in this? Because one of the things we haven't talked about is the cost of IVF. And it can be financially very expensive, but it can also be enormously expensive in terms of time and relationships. And we need to be good stewards in all areas of our lives. And we need to be very careful that we don't allow the search for a child to be an idol so that other areas of our lives get neglected.
1: Thank you. That's helpful. Anything else you want to add to that?
3: So the question was...
1: Whether or not IVF... if there can, is can, an be done done IVF. can be done
3: ethically. I think it's a personal... F- I mean, I wrestle with this... Um, Many of our friends have children through IVF. I see many, many patients, you know, up to 4% of the patients we care for are IVF pregnancies. I think, though, embarking on an IVF cycle undoubtedly has a high likelihood of, you know, producing embryos that will not survive that, those first few days of maturation. And, yeah, I guess I personally struggle with that ethically.
1: In view of that, what alternatives could be explored as people start to face infertility? I mean, when do you even start talking about infertility realistically with people? I hear it's changing, creeping earlier and earlier and earlier.
2: Uh, look, I think what is diagnosed at infertility at times is impatience. I've been told of people diagnosed with infertility after six months of trying, but we know it can take two years for... You know, before over ninety percent of couples get pregnant, it can take two years of trying. So I think we need to be we need to be very wary of an industry that wants us to come along and start to use their products when in fact being more patient. Perhaps things would have happened naturally.
1: Yeah. When something is so wanted and somebody tells you you can have this That is such a strong lure,
2: isn't it? It's so difficult. These people are so emotionally vulnerable. Yeah, Mm.
1: it's very hard.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's, I think, prayerful expectancy certainly has a place. I mean, it's very common to see couples who've gone through IVF technology for their first child who fall pregnant spontaneously. I've seen many, many couples and Mm. it is common. So I think that, you know, Megan's advice is certainly, you know, the idea about planning parenthood for those couples who are in the position to do so is really important you know not delaying childbearing is a really important consideration but certainly not rushing as say 12 months 18 months isn't unusual and I think patience is required.
1: And any alternatives that you explore before getting into the IVF Uh, cycle? I
2: think you've given very good advice. You know, sometimes you might have a vitamin deficiency that's stopping you getting pregnant. To see a GP who practices holistically, looks at your complete health, sometimes the thing that's stopping you from being pregnant has got nothing to do with your reproductive system. It can be a different type of disease that has a treatment, and once you take the treatment, you become fertile and you can get pregnant. So you at least need to screen for those things. You need to aim for a normal body weight. As I said, you need to have sex regularly. There are some very basic things that make a difference to your fertility rate. And it seems, given the ethical problems in IVF, why wouldn't you do those things first?
1: Jonathan and Megan, I am so grateful for what you shared tonight. It takes a lot of courage, I think, to be able to speak openly about these things, things that are very Troubling for so many people. And once again, I want to say to our audience that if you're struggling tonight, I really encourage you to talk to someone, speak to your minister, speak to your Bible study leader, talk to your Bible study group, ask for prayer. We've also given you some resources in our handout to follow up just in case you're really finding yourself at a place where you're really grieved and at a loss. And so we hope that you'll make good use of those resources if necessary. Of course, you can always get in touch with the center through our website. And I would encourage you once more, check out Megan's book. We've given you a few links as well to some other articles that you can read, and we hope that you'll make good use of that. And keep thinking well on these things. Keep reasoning from Scripture prayerfully, and remember that we are longing for a better day, even in our grief, even in our longing. We know that there are great hopes held out to us in Christ, and much of what we anticipate in the future is actually provided to us in the church community and the people around us that can walk beside us and be family to us even when we don't have perhaps even a family of our own i want to pray for us as we conclude our evening and then we'll leave you for the evening father please please help us to think well on these things and please help those that are suffering right now longing for children a very good thing to long for lord we pray that you'll comfort those that are single and wishing that they had a spouse we pray you would comfort those married couples that maybe have been trying and are longing to have a child of their own those that maybe have children and just can't have another please lord bring comfort to them Give each of us a patience. Help us to keep these desires in their place. Help us to continue to long, but not as those without hope. Let us remember your fatherly goodness and care. And even when we don't have everything we want now, let us know that you still love us and are providing for us. And we pray that you will keep us in faith until that day when we will be united with you and all of your people. We're grateful for the wisdom that's been shared to us tonight. We pray you'd continue to bless Jonathan and Megan in each of their lines of work. Give them courage to stand as Christians in that space. And we pray, Lord, that you would protect life in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you all very much for joining us at the Center for Christian Living. We hope you'll keep an eye out and join us again next time. From more resources from the Center for Christian Living. Please subscribe to our podcast and also be sure to visit ccl.more.edu.au, where you can discover many articles, past podcasts, and video materials. You might also like to stay current with what's happening through the Center by signing up for our monthly e-newsletter. We always benefit from receiving questions and feedback from our listeners, and if you'd like to get in touch, you can email us at ccl at moore.edu.au. As always, I'd like to thank Moore College for making the ministry of the Center for Christian Living possible and to extend thanks to my assistant, Karen Bielharts, for audio editing and transcribing. Music provided by James West.
0: Thank you for joining us for the Christians Engaging Culture podcast. Until next time, remember what C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else.